Welcome to Ideas Without Borders, where we take a deeper look at societal problems and form meaningful connections with the global community. This podcast is run by the student members of the University of Waterloo's Engineers Without Borders chapter. The University of Waterloo is situated on the Haldeman Tract, land that was promised to the Six Nations of the Grand River as the traditional territory of the neutral Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. We encourage you to take a moment now to also consider and acknowledge the land from which you are listening. About 80,000 hours go by in an average person's career, and it's easy enough to try and achieve something during this many hours. Of course, there's no shortage of problems in this complicated world we live in. But we often find ourselves asking, what do I want to do with my life? This is often a turning point where we adjust our lens and question us or ourselves in what actually gives us a sense of fulfillment, a feeling that we are effective or making a difference with what we do on a daily basis. In the spirit of engineering analysis, we will be exploring the idea of impact or how to describe it, quantify it, and maybe even optimize it in the context that you're living in. Join me today in this fireside chat with some of the former presidents of the University of Waterloo Engineers Without Borders chapter. And for us as a chapter, impact here is the overarching goal in all that we do and can be described as effective altruism, the topic of a virtual fellowship offered by Stanford University. Now, I'm gonna note here that apart from myself, all of the former presidents here today have completed this fellowship and the goal of this episode is to pick their brains for what effective altruism actually is, what the fellowship was all about, and maybe some of the reflections that came about from these three chapter presidents and what sorts of key take-home messages they might have to share with the rest of us. So I'm going to begin by going around the virtual table here in some quick introductions on, let's say, your name, your program, your presidency years, and maybe what you're currently doing now. Do we want to start with Jeff? Yeah, I can start. As Simon mentioned, my name is Jeffrey, and I graduated last year, uh, 2020, from the University of Waterloo um, with a degree in mechanical engineering. And I was the president of the Engineers Without Borders University of Waterloo chapter during the years of 2018 to 2019. Right now, I am currently working as a food production research engineer at a company called Rebellious Foods, which is a plant-based chicken startup in Seattle, Washington, where I'm located now. I was also the facilitator for the fellowship program that Kareen and Hussein um, were a part of, uh, as well as I am the research team lead for the Stanford Alternative Protein Project. Great. Thanks, Jeff. I'll pass it next to Kareen. My name is Kareen Legaspi. I'm going into my fourth and final year of systems design engineering at Waterloo. I'm one of the current chapter presidents of EWB here at UW. I'm also a former junior fellow of the chapter. Um, so I did a co-op term with an EWB venture called Viamo. Their goal was to increase access to information through mobile services. And I work there as a data and impact analyst and help to quantify and increase their impact, which is one of the topics we'll be diving into today. Last but not least, Hussein. Uh, my name is Hussein, and I'm in my third year of mechanical engineering at the University of Waterloo as well. And this is my first term as chapter president for uh, Engineers Without Borders. Thanks for joining me today in dissecting this idea of impact. And 
I guess in terms of format today, we're going to start off with an overview of the actual fellowship itself with Jeff. And then we're going to dive into uh, some reflections on the fellowship experience with Kareen and Hussein, and then finish up with a discussion about how some of these take-home messages from the fellowship have implications for what we do here at EWB as a chapter. The floor is yours, Jeff. Take it away and tell us what this Stanford Fellowship is all about. All right. Thank you, Simon. So first off, I want to sort of maybe talk about how I first heard and about effective altruism. I just sort of really stumbled across it about three years ago um, during one of my co-op terms. I was trying to get more involved and meet some new people. And I signed up the, the meetup.com website. I was looking through different groups and I came across one called Effective Altruism. Well, what's, what's that all about? I never heard of, of that before. So I kind of Googled the, the, the term and found the, the Wikipedia page. And, oh, that sounds really, really interesting. And there was a link to Peter Singer's TED Talk. So Peter Singer is one of sort of the, the founding members of the Effective Altruism movement. And so I watched his TED talk and it, it really resonated with me. And, you know, I felt that it aligned with a lot of my values and, and beliefs. And since then, it's, it's really snowballed. I've read a lot of effective altruism related books, attended uh, numerous conferences and have led the fellowships and have even changed my career path as a result of sort of learning about effective altruism. So it's been definitely a, a life changing experience. Talking a little bit more about the, the fellowship program, it was more of a, an introduction to effective altruism. I'm sure many of your listeners are probably wondering, well, what is effective altruism? Um, so I'll basically talk briefly about um, the basic principles, the history, and the other sort of key components of it. So essentially, summarize effective altruism in one sentence, uh, basically about maximizing the amount of good that you're able to do in the world. Some people like to say it's a combination of the mind or the brain and the heart. The heart aspect is the altruism part, which is for like trying to help others with no really expectation of being helped in return and using compassion to help not just other human beings, but potentially um, future human beings or even uh, animals and potentially other sentient beings. And then there's the mind part or the brain part, which is the effective part which is more focused on logic and, and rationality. And that's really the key component of making sure that the altruism that we're doing is as effective or as impactful as, as possible. The sort of history of the effective altruism movement, although Peter Singer had a, probably one of the most famous books, Animal Liberation, and I believe it was 1975, was one of the main instigators for the sort of animal rights movement. It wasn't until 10 or so years ago when he released a book called the life you can save. Um, so the, the movement is fairly new and that's really what sort of kicked off the movement. And essentially his book talks about how easy it is for the average person to save the life of someone in usually a, a developing country. Since then, another sort of key founding member of, of the effective altruism movement, Will McCaskill, sort of helped start up a few organizations. So there's uh, 80,000 Hours, which is a website or organization that aims to help people try to find the most impactful careers. There's GiveWell, which is an organization which essentially evaluates the cost effectiveness of different charities to make sure that the donations that effective altruists give are as impactful as possible. And another key organization is the Giving What We Can, 
which aims to promote the sense of, of giving uh, within the community. And it's essentially, they try to get people to pledge to give 10% of their, their income over their lifetime to, to the effective charities, usually evaluated by, by GiveWell. And there's other organizations like the Center for, for Effective Altruism. And there's been other conferences like EA Global over the years. Um, and the movement, although is fairly small, it is, is growing very quickly. And there are chapters starting up uh, each year. And it seems to be growing at a fairly good pace. So one of the key aspects of the effective altruism movement is really looking at cost effectiveness analyses. Basically, you want to find what's the best bang for your buck, so to speak. But in terms of the bang is like the benefit. There are various things you can use to evaluate, you know, what benefit you want to gain from it. The key part of effective altruism is trying to find the most cost-effective interventions for solving the, the world's most pressing problems. So one example is trying to find what intervention would be um, most cost-effective in terms of increasing the number of years of schooling that children in developing countries are likely to have in their lifetime. So two interventions that were evaluated using uh, what's called randomized control trials were providing scholarships to students. Another one was providing deworming, which is essentially providing pills to students that would prevent them from getting intestinal worms. Um, so comparing the results of these randomized controlled trials that were conducted, it was determined that the deworming program was nearly 100 times more cost-effective than providing scholarships to students, which may seem a bit um, surprising or unintuitive to, to many people. Um, which is why that it's important that a studies get conducted like this so we realize you know which interventions are most important because it may be contrary to our, our uh, intuition another aspect of effective altruism is evaluating problems so effective altruism is about trying to do the most good in the world and in order to do that as simon mentioned there's a lot of complex and pressing problems in the world but which ones are the most important or which ones should we really focus on in order to answer that question, there are three key factors that the effective altruism movement sort of evaluates various global problems on. They are scale, which essentially is how large of a problem is it? So you know, how many deaths, for example, per year does it cause? So if we were to, to eliminate, um, say, cancer, you know, how many, how many lives would we save, essentially? Then the next factor is neglectedness, which is how few resources, time, uh, people, money, effort um, are spent on solving that problem currently. And then the third factor is solvability. So how likely are you actually able to, to solve that problem? One way of looking at this is doing an example between cancer and malaria. So cancer has been a problem that we've been working on for decades and have poured millions possibly even billions of dollars into trying to find a solution to, and we've made very minimal progress towards finding a cure. However, there's the alternative, or not alternative, but the other option or as a comparison is malaria, which we have proven solutions for, uh, most notably providing bed nets to uh, children in high malaria areas has been proven to be very effective in reducing the rates of malaria in those areas, a very solvable problem. So those are sort of the factors that the effective altruism movement uses to evaluate different cause areas. And there are sort of four major cause areas that the effective altruism movement really focuses on. Uh, the first one being global health, which is essentially trying to alleviate 
poverty and other easily curable diseases um, that have more or less been eradicated within the developed world, but are still causing immense suffering in the developing world. Another major cause area is animal welfare. So particularly looking at really trying to end factory farming as there's over 70 billion land animals, as well as trillions of aquatic animals killed every year as a result of human consumption. And if animals are capable of suffering, that's a huge amount of suffering that goes on in the world. And if we are able to eliminate factory farming, we would be able to spare uh, those animals' lives from having such horrible, living in horrible conditions and the amount of suffering that they would endure. Third major cause area is what's called long-termism, which is essentially looking at what are things that we can do now to ensure that humanity will exist for thousands or millions of more years. And particularly, this is usually looking at what are called existential risks. So risks that could potentially cause humanity to become extinct. This can include risks from artificial intelligence, uh, as well as bio risk from either naturally occurring pandemics, such as a coronavirus, or even nuclear war is another potential thing that could cause human extinction. And then the fourth major cause area within the effective altruism movement is what's called meta-effective altruism, which is looking at how to best grow and expand the effective altruism movement through either raising more awareness and doing more advocacy work to help people have more impactful careers and learn about EA. The meta part is looking at EA internally and trying to figure out, you know, of these cause areas, which of those are really more most impactful. And this is what's called global priorities research, which is really trying to figure out what are the most pressing problems that humanity should focus on. And that usually involves using the scale neglectedness and solvability factors. And so bringing this all together, this sort of relates to what, what can you do on, on a personal level and that's what's discussed in the final week of the fellowship program and is a main focus on, on 80,000 hours, which is sort of the career website, which I talked about earlier. And the 80,000 hours gets its name from um, essentially it's the average amount of time that the person will spend working in their career. The logic behind um, a lot of what 80,000 hours is about is that if you were to just spend a mere 1% of your career, which is about... 800 hours or five months, essentially, trying to figure out if what would be the most impactful career that you could have. And if you could just be even 10% more effective for the rest of your career, which is really more of a conservative estimate, I think people could be orders of magnitude more impactful if they were to carefully use their time to figure out how to best use their career, then it would be a huge and definitely worthwhile investment if you were to spend just one or even 5% of your 80,000 hours trying to figure out how to use the remaining time as effectively as possible. So that's just sort of a brief overview of, of effective altruism. Thanks so much, Jeff. You had some really interesting points that I think could easily be prominent research areas in itself. Thinking about scale, when we try to identify or describe problems, thinking about how to measure neglectedness and how to actually define solvability of a given problem. After hearing all of this unpacked so wonderfully from you, I think maybe political leaders and world leaders should definitely go through this fellowship before actually undertaking their duties to the, to the broader public. Sounds like it'd be very helpful. 
Just to reiterate some quick facts about the fellowship before we get into the reflections. Does this fellowship cost anything? Is there a registration fee or a membership fee? Nope, it's uh, completely free and it's run all by volunteers. Nice. Is all of this content synchronous or in asynchronous? Uh, so the way the fellowship works is you get put into what's called the cohort, ranges from three to five people, and each cohort has one facilitator. And you arrange a time, like have meetings once a week with everyone in your cohort. And that's when you have a discussion about the readings for that week. So the readings you do on your own time, um, but the discussion is something where everyone comes together and they talk about um, the readings from, from that week. And just to clarify, this was eight weeks in total? Yep, it's an eight-week program. Great. Now that you've heard a little bit about what this program is all about, let's go ahead and get some feedback or maybe reflections on what this experience was like from our two other chapter presidents. So the first question that I kind of want to ask uh, both of you, Hussein and Kareen, is what sparked your interest? I think for me, it was the way it was initially raised when Jeff presented it. He said that this was an engineering approach to maximizing your impact, which, you know, is, in being in engineering and a lot of our, a lot of our chapters in engineering, I think that obviously strikes a chord with people and it gets you interested in like, you know, what, like, what is engineering about this or where, where does the quantitative parts come in? It was really eye-opening to see how, how impact was um, quantified and the different terms that were talked about. And I thought it would be an interesting topic to learn more about, especially if I wanted to have a career or a life dedicated towards impact um, to actually be able to communicate and evaluate decisions. For myself, uh, similar to Hussein, I was also interested after hearing Jeff's presentation, engineering approach to impact. In particular, going into sort of my final years of engineering, I was really curious as to what career I would pursue for the long term after graduation. And so something that really piqued my interest in that presentation was um, the 80,000 hours initiative. And so I was interested in taking the fellowship to kind of explore that more and see what opportunities and problem spaces are out there in terms of where I can make an impact with my career and education. Now that you've completed the fellowship program, how would you think the content you've been presented with has actually changed your perspective on your career trajectory, let's say? I think it actually provided um, context for like a lot more options than I initially thought there were to be impactful because I guess initially throughout undergrad, I kind of saw jobs as like, okay, this is related to climate change or helping people. And so this is an impactful job. And then there's like other jobs, which really, for example, like for mechanical, like in automotive, like traditional automotive or manufacturing products, which is, is still important, but not as geared towards impact. And so I would see jobs and opportunities kind of like that. But I think there were a lot of cause areas uh, that were opened up. And so I think in a way it kind of provided more opportunities. They also talked about some ways that you could still be impactful through your decisions and donations. Again, similar to Hussein, I was also exposed to a lot of different cause areas that I wasn't aware of or wasn't aware of their scale. So that was really interesting to learn more about. I also was introduced to the concept of earning to give, which I believe we'll talk about a bit later, which is something that I had never considered before uh, in terms of applying that to my career. And so that was a really great way to kind of gain perspective into how to make an impact without 
directly working with a company dedicated to a specific cause area. What would you say would be some, not necessarily criticisms, but maybe something that you would have liked to learn more about after going through the fellowship? Um, so week six of the fellowship focused on criticisms of effective altruism. And I kind of dug into this a lot more because I was interested to see the other side of the fellowship or the movement, sorry, and specifically how it kind of has implications to the mission and vision of Engineers Without Borders. So the approach that EWB takes towards international development is very bottom up and aims to create a systemic impact, whereas some critiques of EEA had said that there was more of a focus on creating the greatest gain in welfare, which may lead to systemic neglect of other people. I think the way I can best explain this maybe is EWB kind of works bottom up by working with entrepreneurs in the community to problem solve, whereas EA looks from the top to see who is at most need and kind of works with those big organizations rather than small community groups. And so that's where I see a sort of implication with what EWB approaches in their impact. And there's kind of advantages and disadvantages to both approaches, right? Without bottom-up focused strategies, you oftentimes miss a lot of the context specific to the problem, let's say location or the, the time. But on the other side, if you work from a top-down perspective and you looked at everything from a higher level, you start to see maybe the forest rather than just the tree, right? And often in those kinds of scales, do we actually see emergent patterns or maybe connections that may not necessarily be so clear when you're framing the problem in, say, a localized context. We see the same thing in energy development, right? There's hundreds and hundreds of renewable energy projects all around the world, and developers often run into very difficult problems. But without communicating with each other, let's say if we had a solar developer in Australia and they had installation issues, maybe there's another person in Germany, let's say, who is facing similar issues that could potentially help each other. But without a higher level way of thinking in terms of global energy development, these two people mean in fact never meet. It may be just as likely that these two people come up with their own solutions that work just as well to addressing whatever challenges that they share, right? So I think it's good to have a sense of both bottom-up approaches and top-down approaches and understand how they work and maybe even sometimes rely on both where it's appropriate. I'll turn the floor back to the three of you now and actually ask you in turn, what were your biggest takeaways personally from the fellowship? A good takeaway for me was that there's a community of people everywhere that is actually interested in this kind of thing. We did this fellowship in our cohorts, but there were some meetings that had a bunch of people from around the world. And, and I think those those meetings had really good energy and the people involved, everyone was very like-minded. It was really kind of comforting to see that there's a lot of people dedicated to cause areas that you didn't even know existed. So it's humbling, but it's good to know that all that support and that community is out there. Lots of parallels to how EWB itself has multiple chapters across the country, right? Everyone's always working on something. And at the end of the day, we share a lot of similar values between chapters. So I kind of want to shift gears now and actually frame the things that you've been learning in the context of our chapter here at Waterloo and talk a little bit more about the idea of impact. I'm assuming now you're all effective altruism experts. 
Can the three of you actually agree on a definition of impact for me and for our listening audience? So impact can sort of be evaluated on various different metrics. First of all, I think impact should try to be as quantitative as possible, although it could be fairly qualitative in terms of how you evaluate it. But essentially, there has to be some sort of metric that you evaluate it on. Um, and there are many different ones that you could choose from. Live saved is a common one. But another metric that's used primarily in, in effective altruism communities, what are called qualities or quality adjusted life years. So Q-A-L-Y-S. And essentially, they're a tool or a metric that evaluate the amount of good years of life that you're able to produce through doing something. There's some flaws to looking at this metric. Um, it's not the best one, but it's, it is one thing that GiveWell uses to evaluate in terms of looking at live saves. So like, for example, if you save the life of uh, a five-year-old who would have had like a fairly well-off life, that'd be a lot of qualities that you would sort of generate through doing that. Whereas if you were to save maybe like an elderly person who was going to have a disability and you made them live a few years longer, but their life quality wouldn't have been that great, um, you'd be only generating just a few quality adjusted life years. And so that's one metric you could use to evaluate impact. And there's numerous other metrics. So I think um, <laughs> not really to give you a concrete answer, but I think having some sort of metric um, that you can measure and quantify. And so it sounds like it's a reflection of what you care about when trying to address the problem, right? Yeah, yeah, that's one way to look at it, yeah. To me, it sounds like, from what you're saying, impact in, in terms of like a text-based definition is, broadly speaking, the change in the experience or the process for someone or something as a result of the actions that you take. Very, very well said. I like how you transformed sort of my ramble there into a more coherent definition. So thank you. Yeah, fairly sums it up very, quite well. And I know that in the context of effective altruism, impact is associated to be something positive, but I'm going to play devil's advocate here and also suggest that the word impact itself is rather neutral, that you could have something such as a negative impact. For example, smoking has a negative impact on your respiratory health or Driving under influence has a negative impact on your judgment in navigating the road. Good setup to what we're about to dive into next, which is actually the process of coming up with these metrics like you've been talking about for the different things that we're working on in the chapter. Let's dive a little bit into EW's impact framework and think about some of the units that we might be using here when we talk about things like impact investing in, in our case, human capital or skill set capital, if that's really a word. Here at at least the student chapter, we spend a lot of time and energy uh, learning from each other, teaching each other things that we thought might be worth sharing, certain skill sets that transcend the mandate or the mission of EWB, but also apply to other aspects of our lives, such as public speaking, such as presenting, such as self-guided research, such as making new connections to support an idea, right? Along these lines, and this will be really interesting because each one of you have been president of the chapter at a different point in time. How would you actually measure the impact of the chapter with a metric? 
Well, while I was sort of the chapter president, one of my main focuses was donations um, and trying to sort of maximize the amount that we could donate to EWB's fund because I feel that the amount of good that we're able to do in the developing world is orders of magnitude, maybe not better, but more productive or cost effective than what we're able to do with our local chapter and at our university. And I know that may may seem a bit harsh um, to, to hear and and I may be wrong, but um, that was something I sort of believed more or less to be true and felt it was something that I could easily focus on and sort of guide the chapter towards. That being said, I still focused on the other aspects of the chapter. I feel like they're also very important, like doing the member learning sessions, like as, as you mentioned, it's important for you know us to help sort of uh, share knowledge. And another aspect I look at is trying to expand the EWV community. That was one sort of way I'd want to have more impact was to sort of grow the chapter. And in doing so, Again, one way of looking at it, if I'm able to influence, you know, two people um, to be more effective or to join the EWV chapter, then their impact is sort of as, as a result of mine, so I'm sort of almost like doubling my impact. So to summarize, your metrics would be dollars raised through fundraisers donated to X charity. The It Takes a Village Fund is probably what you were referring to, right? Yeah. 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 So. At the time, that was what we were. So that'd be one metrics. Dollars raised for the It Takes a Village Fund. And then your other metric would be number of members, new members uh, that have joined the chapter as a result of your presidency. Yeah, I think those, those are my two main focuses while I was the chapter president. Let's go to Kareen next. Sure, yeah. So building off what Jeff had last mentioned, I think with the online term, the metric that is easiest to measure is how many participants joined the Zoom call. Um, it's really easy to see it on your screen, and it kind of symbolizes how many people are interested and invested in the EWB community and the initiatives that we take part in and lead. Um, and taking that a bit further, I would also kind of measure how many members continue on into the next term, because that further shows their interest and dedication to EWB and how much they value and align themselves with EWB's values. And then lastly, I would see one important metric would be how many members are interested in becoming an exec member, because that sort of implies an interest in responsibility and interest in becoming more of a systems change leader and an interest in increasing their impact in the EWB community, not just in our chapter, um, but also the EWB national community. I probably measure once we recruit for a new exec team, how many of those members have been a part of the chapter just as a general member. And that way you kind of see their progress, just a general member and kind of see their dedication and interest and involvement grow into becoming an executive member and stepping like into more leadership positions. Yeah, I like that. I think it's really important to also consider retention which is one of the other things you mentioned because projects don't often finish themselves in four months or say three months uh, with the way that the school operates here at Waterloo. Seeing that long-term commitment to a project or a group of people or um, an idea persist is very, very heartwarming, at least to me. Mm -hmm. Okay, now we'll move to our most uh, recent president, actually current president in our chronological timeline, Hussein. Yeah, I, I agree with a lot of what's been said. So definitely, you know, total number of donations, total number of members, 
um, and then total number of members that actually come back are important metrics. We try to, you know, at the beginning of the term and end of the term, ask people like, what is your knowledge of EWB and the values, you know, beginning versus end, to see how effective we were at actually spreading those values and the mission. One thing that's been really important to me in particular, though, is on the topic of building systems change leaders, which is one of the values for EWB. I thought our chapter is extremely strong at putting together events and fundraisers, and there's there's no shortage of passion there. But sometimes there's a shortage of involvement from the broader community. By broader community, I mean like either the, in the Kitchener area or the broader student community. Just because people don't exactly know what the chapter is or in an environment that is very technical and competitive, oftentimes people will dedicate more time towards things that will build their skills. And so I want to provide the most amount of opportunities for people to develop the types of skills they want that would also help them with a career in international development um, or in engineering from a sustainability perspective, which is why in addition to the typical things we do as a chapter, like our advocacy podcasts, things like that. We had a whole host of new projects, new roles to one, bring in a lot of people because they might not have been interested in advocacy or something, but they were interested in those projects. And that brought them into the community, which helps with our recruitment, helps with donations. And number two, just generally build the talent level of all of our, of our, of our community. Yeah, I think it's really true what you've spoken to, Hussein, where a lot of the times that the culture at Waterloo in terms of extracurriculars is seeking as many opportunities to build relevant skills for yourself in order to make you competitive uh, in the job market, right? And there's uh, no need for me to elaborate how important that is with the co-op program, as I'm sure all three of you have experienced at some point or another. I guess to summarize, not only with the number of people involved with the chapter as a metric be important to you, Hussein, but also would you say the number of skills that people are taking away uh, as a result of their involvement also be important? Mm -hmm. Yeah, number of skills, number of hours spent to kind of bring in those people who are you know really dedicated to their portfolios, but it might only be one or two people. That's actually a pretty interesting exercise. If we had like a timesheet kind of system for all the portfolios and the members hopping into it every term could just at a very rough, rough level, just log their hours and maybe tag the hours that they're spending with a very short controlled list of descriptions. Like, oh, I spent this many hours coding or I spent this many hours doing graphic design. Like we would have quantitative data to actually play with and describe our impact as a result. And it might be very preliminary and very high level and descriptive as a first step of the impact. But the other thing we have to also think about with all the metrics that the three of you mentioned is that the impacts that we have often in a ripple effect impact other things later on down the line. A lot of the times these secondary impacts are often unknown. With that being said, the trajectories themselves of these subsequent impacts are very nonlinear. For me, I think most satisfying part of this non-linearity and impacts on impacts on impacts is when somewhere down the line, that very last impact somehow makes it back to the beginning of the chain and everything comes full circle. And I think a really cool example of that is the fundraising thing that you were talking about, Jeff, when we actually raised a bunch of money to donate to It Takes a Village. That actually sparked not so much monetary value at first for some of the other things that we were trying to get funding for, but 
it laid the groundwork for how to actually do fundraisers properly at the chapter, which now that we had the knowledge and the wisdom on how to run fundraising events, spiraled in subsequent terms to our Krispy Kreme donut sales, right? Which are like highly, highly successful and actually got upscaled multiple times in the iterations that we've done. And as a result, raised even more money to donate to It Takes a Village and other sources as well, right? If we were to take that experience and build off of that, long story short, these, these fundraising people running the Krispy Kreme donut operations were now confident enough to go and present to the Waterloo Engineering Endowment Fund for a grant to actually support the podcast portfolio. And it was through that connection that we had enough funds from Weef. So shout out to Weef for sponsoring the audio quality of this episode the funds to actually go buy better audio equipment. And that audio equipment actually now supports the quality of our production, but it also makes it seem like to an outsider, we are more legit than they had initially assumed, right? We're not just huddled around, let's say a recording on a cell phone that was borrowed from somebody uh, in a table in E5, right? We are now actually a team of undergrads who have equipment, have the design templates for our episodes, who have targeted questions, booked rooms, and, or maybe not so much now, booked, booked virtual rooms and like actual order to how we produce episodes. Now, building off of these episodes as a result, and this goes back to Jeff actually, through one of the episodes that these two microphones have had the privilege to capture, um, Jeff, in return on his investment of setting up a really good fundraising structure, came across this opportunity to work in India through our segment with the Waterloo Institute for Sustainable Energy, WISE, right? And so I think that was just like a really satisfying loop that I was able to witness kind of going on in the background. But that's not just to say that once you close a loop, the impact stops there. Because remember, this is very highly non-linear and Pretty soon, I'm, I'm pretty confident that in time, we're going to have this like giant network in like three-dimensional space of circles drawing and looping everywhere and maybe forming this giant cluster of bubbles that encapsulate each and every one of our unique experiences, which is, yeah, like what Kareen's uh, messaging me now known as systems mapping. <laughs> While we're on the subject of impact, uh, one thing I want to, to bring up was something that as used commonly in effective altruism movement, which is called counterfactual impact, which is essentially looking at what would happen otherwise. So in a more like a parallel universe type thing, like if I didn't do X, what would be the outcome of that? Um, in some cases, if you don't do something, nothing might change. For example, if you don't take a job, there's likely that someone else is going to get that job instead. But one specific that comes to mind where I know I definitely um, had a counterfactual impact was actually taking on the role of president of the EWB chapter. Back in that time, I think it was around March or April of, of 2018, our chapter was not in a very good condition. I'm not sure if you remember, Simon. Um, yeah. You were hesitant at the time to take on the presidency yeah. role yeah. and yeah. serve both I think Tony, Paula, and Mon were, were all stepping down as presidents and no one else was really willing to take on the presidency role. And I kind of felt like, you know, if, if this is something I don't do, then I don't know who's going to take it on. And I thought doctor yeah. was, was going to end right there. Um, and there were very few people that were willing to stay on involved with the chapter. And I had to hire a lot of new people to join the executive team. And I think as a result, the chapter is still thriving as it is today. 
I try not to think of what would happen had I not sort of taken on the budget. <laughs> I don't know where where we'd be right now. Maybe maybe the chapter would be here having first. this conversation yeah, right we now. We definitely would not be having this conversation. <laughs> yeah. I think that's always something very important to consider when you're when you're making decisions and when you're evaluating your impact. It's like, well, you made this decision, but did that really end up actually making a difference? Like, how do you know that wouldn't have happened otherwise? Yeah, the, the consequence of the no-go option, right? Mm-hmm. With that in mind, if you're still listening to with us at this point, like one, I commend you. Thanks for sticking around. But two, I encourage you to think about how you would go about measuring the impacts that you want to be having throughout your career. And so to summarize, I guess, two take-home messages that I have as, at least as the interviewer, number one, your career can indirectly and directly impact the lives of others in a linear or even a non-linear way. Thinking about how this happens now, before you embark on your career, can actually be pretty useful in shaping your next steps, uh, leading to ultimately a sense of self-fulfillment. Two, finding useful definitions of impact that work for you and living by those definitions, taking a moment every now and then to think about that definition and maybe adjusting it depending on your context, because remember time is also a dimension we care about. Living by those definitions can lead to very satisfying and often unexpected outcomes, as we've just seen here with my very, very long tangent. Um, But I guess to close off between the three of you, would any of you encourage others to take this fellowship? I absolutely would would recommend this fellowship to anyone who really wants to make a a positive impact in the world and to actually make sure that you're having a positive impact because there's some things, some interventions where you think you're doing good, but you may actually be doing more harm than good or actually have no net impact. And it's important for you to realize that you know, some things are able to, to be better. And if you could have even just twice as much impact by taking this fellowship, I feel that'd be hugely a benefit to everyone. Even if your goal isn't impact, I would recommend participating. You're not going to lose anything and some cool readings on a good group. Yeah, I would definitely encourage you to take the fellowship if you are like me and find yourself in an existential crisis, um, thinking about what exactly you want to do with your career. I think the fellowship introduces you to a new perspective and opportunities to kind of pursue a worthwhile or fulfilling career, whatever that may mean to you. So it's definitely a great way to explore and learn from a cool group of people. Jeff, can you end this episode with some quick actionable follow-up links and or web pages or emails that the listeners could get their hands on to get involved with? Yeah, absolutely. So the fellowship is is run by the Stanford University Effective Altruism chapter. And there's similar fellowships run by other chapters around the world that you can sign up for. But Stanford does theirs on a quarterly basis. So it's more or less aligns with the, the season. So the the next one goes from July to September, and then there'll be one again in the fall, and then every three months it sort of cycles through. So if you want to sign up for one of the fellowships, you can either send me an email, and you can include my, my email in the, the show notes, and I'll also try to get a link from the organizers for the, the latest sign-up sheet. But other things that you can do, if maybe you don't want to take the full commitment of doing the fellowship, you just want to get your, your toes wet, so to speak, um, I encourage you to join either a local chapter, uh, the University of Waterloo has a effective altruism chapter, or even just joining um, Facebook groups within the effective altruism community are, are a great um, sort of way to learn a little bit about EA before if you want to take on a fellowship. 
yeah, those are some next steps that I would definitely recommend your listeners take if they're, if they're interested. Great. Thanks so much, Jeff. And once again, thank you to the three of you for taking the time to allow me to pick your brains today for this topic. It's always heartwarming to see cross-generational fireside chats um, because it, it keeps the, the legacy strong. And I hope that conversations like these continue in the future as more and more future presidents join the line. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on Ideas Without Borders.